Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is the first time you checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest, people, I'm telling you, you know, when you create that list of people that you want to get on your podcast and you go, if everything aligned in the stars, who would I have? I'm having that guest on, one of the guests on today, Charlene Lee. If you don't know, you will know by the end of this podcast. Speaker, writer, CEO, entrepreneur, she does it all, people. I, I never met her in person, but I've seen her talks on YouTube, and she is a phenomenal speaker, and we'll be jumping into that. Uh, so for those who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Simplecast, Charlene, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, Dr. Will. It's Charlene Lee here. So glad to be here talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying yes to coming on the show. Um, I always like to ask people, because I'm always curious about how do people find that one thing that pulls at them, that sets them afire, that, that thing that they do not have to set the alarm to get out of bed for because they're just made for it? How did you find yourself where you are in your career today? And what drew you to digital disruption and transformation? Well, I think just from an early age, just a little bit of background on me, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Detroit. So being Asian in Detroit, you're kind of, you kind of stick out a little bit. So I, um, I, I grew up being a disruption because people didn't know what to do with me everywhere I went. It was just like, um, this person kind of doesn't fit in with the others. So I kind of got used to it. And so as a result, I, I don't think twice really of being different or standing out as a result. So that gave me a lot of confidence early on to do that. And that translated into some extraordinary interactions and, and, and encounters, as you can imagine, uh, when, when you spark that kind of curiosity, like, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And what I have striven for my entire career is, is what I call the aha moment. That moment when you just discover something new, you look at the world in a different way. You eat a new food, you meet, meet somebody differently, you travel, you read something. And I get this aha moment. And everything I do is to try to help people find their aha moment. So that's what drives me. That's what gets me up in the morning for myself, but also my mission and my cause to help people thrive with this, this disruption that's happening, turning it into something that's negative, into something that could be really positive. So you have this new book coming out in August. And I've had a pleasure of reading uh, your work what made you write the disruption mindset and what do you hope that people will take away from the book? I wrote it because I, I've always said that my purpose in life is to help people thrive with disruption. And then somebody goes, so how do I do that? How do I thrive with disruption? And like, I had some really high level ideas, but nothing really detailed. Mm -hmm. So I thought if I'm actually going to help people do this, I better get my act together and find some answers. So how do you thrive? How do you take on what I call the disruption mindset? And 
help you grow, helps you grow and achieve what I call exponential growth and change. Mm. I, I think there are so many problems in the world. We need as many people who are confident in their disruption abilities and able to create exponential change in their organizations, in their communities, and also in their society. So why not you? Why not me? Why not us? And let's figure out a way to do this together. So I want to throw this out there to you because we know that there are individuals and entities that are entrenched in their beliefs and their traditions. And even though they see all of this change happening around them, they fail to embrace it. Like folks don't know that Kodak actually developed a digital camera way back in the day. But someone decided, oh, no one does, people don't want to do that, they want the film. And they just got passed by because everyone else jumped on the digital when they actually created the technology first. When you are writing your books and you're talking about, you know, open leadership and, and other things and you are working with leaders and, and you're getting them to understand that whether you like it or not, this world is moving and you need, if you want to stay relevant, you want to be successful, if you want to move your organization forward, you have to embrace it and get involved and, and become an active participant. How do you talk to those people to get them I, understanding that you can't ignore it? Yeah. I think at, in their hearts, they know they can't ignore it. They, they, they see it, they intellectually understand it, they know they have to do something different. But you know, it's pretty darn comfortable right here. And that change isn't really hitting me in the face right now. Maybe I can just put it off for another couple of years until I really have to make the change. And when that time comes, I'll be ready to make that change. But everything's working pretty well here right now. Why should we disrupt ourselves? We'll do it, we'll be ready. I know it's gonna happen, but let's just put it off for as long as possible. And, and, and honestly, that's a valid strategy. I don't think it's going to be a successful one, but it is a valid strategy, especially if you don't think your organization is capable of sustaining the, the, the trauma and the obstacles, overcoming all those things to make that change happen. The reason why most companies can see this future but don't think they can act today is because today's customers, today's situation is so beautiful and so compelling and so comfortable. And the only reason, the only thing I have found in my research that will get people to move off of today and to pursue this uncomfortable future, to go after it, is because that future customer, that future constituent, that stakeholder is so important to you, becomes so real to you. You feel like you have to go running towards them. They're pulling you. And it's enough to overcome all the inertia that you face today. The biggest barrier to disruption is the fact that you're successful today. Mm. I mean, why would I take my, my success, my profits, put it at risk to pursue this uncertain future? That's completely nuts, right? And that doesn't make any sense. I could go out of business. I could fail as an educator. I could fail as a parent or a community member if I pursue this risky path forward. Why on earth would I ever do that? 
And the only reason I can do it is because I understand that what I have today isn't going to be there in the future. I understand that if I don't do something today to pursue that future, it's not going to be there for me. It's not going to be an option in another few years. So I've got to move today. It's the only thing that has ever mattered. Wow. I wonder what the people who ran Blockbuster are thinking now. You know, it's so interesting. Um, when Blockbuster was going through all this and Kodak, and I, I knew some of the Kodak people in particular going through that at the same time, they knew what was happening. And it was a little bit too late um, for, for Kodak. They just had made the wrong choices. They were trying to move into new businesses, but it was too late. Um, with Blockbuster, they expanded way too quickly. They, they kind of dug their own grave because they ran out of cash. Mm. Netflix didn't kill them. They killed themselves in many ways. Um, and so there's, there's all these other sort of circumstantial things. And yet we come up with the same um, players over and over again. Toys R Us, Radio Shack, Blockbuster, um, it, Kodak. We're the positive example. And that's what I wanted to do with my book was to find, okay, give me some examples of people who actually have been able to disrupt themselves, go through this hard times. What was it like? And to a person, they said it was awful. It was hard. It was painful. But it was so worth it in the end. Mm. Well, we, we're seeing it with journalism. Uh, you yeah, know, I, I, I came out of Harvard Business School in 1993, and I decided to go into newspapers. Now, just, just coming out of business school and going to newspapers was kind of insane as it was. Uh, but I wanted to, at that time, there was no World Wide Web. I came out when there was just the internet still. But I could see that this was going to be highly disruptive to newspapers and to publishing and to journalism. So I said, I'm going to go to the San Jose Mercury News in the middle of, middle of Silicon Valley and help figure this out. I wanted to be there and have a front row seat and get my hands dirty into this new space where everything, all the rules were being rewritten. I could see it already. And, and that, I, I think, was a precursor to me becoming an analyst and a, and a writer, a researcher, because I can kind of see these things on the horizon. But it was fascinating. We could see from back in 1993, 94, 95, that this was going to basically kill the online classifieds model. We knew even then. And we set up as newspapers, all of these great classifieds and online were highly competitive in all of these areas, um, but we couldn't get out of our own way. In the end, it was about preserving the profits in the print business, and we could never sacrifice the print business in order to pursue this online business. But a newspaper, a different newspaper group in Scandinavia, in Sweden, called Shipstead, did do that. They set up a separate business, and they made concessions on the print side to support the online side. And even if it hurt the print, they still invested in the online. So they took pretty much the same tactics, actually about five years later than Silicon Valley. And they're now the number one online classifieds and trading site in Europe. So a completely different way of writing it. And all of those profits fund their journalism. They take in those profits that's still being held by the holding company separate business they just basically said what happened in print we're going to put online print is dead but we need these online classified revenues to be able to fund our journalism they're successful awesome. make it happen awesome and I, I love just the immediacy of digital where when you take that newspaper 
once that newspaper is printed and it's delivered, if something breaking news happens, they have to wait the next day to print a new paper versus if you're talking about the Washington Post or New York Times online, something happens, that story along with video, that bad boy can be put on right then and people gain access to the information and they don't have to wait for this document to be printed. Yeah, but I also like to say that if I told you, here is this device that doesn't need batteries, um, can be recycled, and it just goes on and on, right? And it, it, it can take it out onto the beach with you and not have to worry about it. Like, yeah, give it to me. It's called paper. So there's, there's something really compelling about paper, so it doesn't have the immediacy. But from a foreign factor, it is excellent. I still read a paper every morning. Granted, I don't read the front page because I already read it on my phone. It's all the other stuff in the back. So easy to scan, easy to flip through. It's very efficient. I love the form factor of paper. It's the reason why printed books still work really well. People learn, they like the ability to see the paper, hold the paper, read through it, versus looking at an electronic book um, or listening to it. We all learn and absorb information in different ways. It's not that one is better than other. They all have their strengths. They all have the weaknesses, but let's appreciate them. It's always going to be a mix. But yeah, for you not to realize like, hey, digital, there are things you can do with digital that you could never do before. And especially because I'm about to go publish a book, the ability to personalize books. I'm not able to do that with this book, but one of the things I'm looking at is how can I take the digital book and do some interesting things with it? How can I personalize that? How can I make it more relevant to you so that your experience is great? One of my pet peeves is when I listen to an audiobook and there's an image, I can't see the image in the audiobook. But what if I were to have it, that image sync with the audiobook inside of the text? Because I usually am listening to it on my device on my phone. I can just look down and see it to reinforce what you're hearing and what you're saying. So as an educator, there are so many, it's, educators are, uh, education is being disrupted in so many different ways. But we know that differentiated learning is like the keystone for people being able to be effective. But it's very difficult to do when you're one teacher with 30 students. How do you do differentiated learning? And technology is just one of the answers, but nothing substitutes a fantastic teacher who knows how to use that technology. Yes, yes. So that's a different story there. I mean, that's part of what my job is as an instructional technologist is to work with teachers uh, in making sense of going digital and using these tools to, you know, reimagine the learning experiences of their students. And some of the, some of my own experiences that have sort of made me go, is when I get that teacher, whether they are 15 years in, or even someone who just graduated from college and they're in, and they're like, I prefer paper. Uh, you're in a one-to-one Chromebook school. Uh, we have we have a learning management system and uh, digital courseware and these other tools at your disposal. Is how do I get them to think about the technology in a different way? And the first year, I literally burned myself out because I went in with such a grandiose digital disruption, you know, mindset of technology is changing the game, people. And I 
had about four people that jumped on and the rest sort of gave me so much pushback. I was like, okay, uh-uh. You, so I had to pivot in terms of my approach and how do I work with the teachers? And then at that point I said, okay, well, let me show them the win-win. Let me look at their classroom. Let me observe. Let me have conversations with them, you know, find out their strengths. What are they looking for student outcomes? And then find out just this one little nugget. How can I get you to push the needle just a little forward? And once teachers started to find the win-win, then there was that groundswell, pun intended, of people now going, oh, I can do this. I want to do this next. And that made everything like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. But before then, I couldn't push them that grand vision because they just couldn't see it or they weren't ready for it. Yeah, I, I keep going back to, I think you and I, like, we can see that, right? Because we think digital, we kind of, for whatever reason, we're just kind of wired that way. Even though we are not born digital natives, we can see that. And, and I can see it usually, again, in, in the people I work with, there's a small number of people who just get it. And then there's also going to be some people, no matter what you do, no matter how much win-win you do, they're never going to get it. And the vast majority of people in the middle need that aha moment. Needed and, and the key thing is to have aligned objectives. We are both, look, you gotta trust me here. Uh, we are both aligned around student outcomes, improving student outcomes. Agree? Yes, we're agreed. So what are your biggest barriers to that? If you can help them meet their biggest barriers, that's where it goes. I ask leaders who are total curmudgeons about digital and all this stuff, and I go, what are your top three priorities? Who are you trying to reach? How do you measure your success? And what are your biggest obstacles? And usually in, in within those questions, I can find something again of where, oh, this could help you with this. They go, I never thought of that. But you have to put it in the context of their reality. If it's not in their reality, the way that they look at the world. So that is the biggest thing I find with disruptors is that you've got to pivot the world that you see it, not, from the, not to get people to look at the way that you see it, but for you to understand how they see it. So there is uh, two characteristics of really successful disruptors. The first of all, they have that openness to change, that mindset to change. But the second part is a leadership behavior, which is that you can empower, inspire people. You have this ability to connect with people, get them to understand that vision, help you understand how to help them. And you can focus on that relationship and that can bring them along. But without that second piece, you're just waving your arms. And nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. It's only when you can actually create change through and with people that you can see exponential change happening. So you are so engaging. You're a great communicator, phenomenal speaker. What are you feeling when you are up on the stage? Uh, in the beginning, I was not always a great speaker. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> Um, but now when I get on stage, I'm excited. I'm, I'm backstage. I'm doing some deep breathing. Frankly, I'm doing some power posing, you know, getting my, getting my, my mojo going. And then I straddle my page because I'm excited to create that aha moment in people, to create that learning and to, to really help people find the strength and this confidence in themselves. And 
it's great to step off the stage to read the Twitter comments, to talk to people afterwards. And they go, that was really amazing. That was so amazing speech. And I always ask them, thank you so much. What was your takeaway? And it's partly for me, but it's more for them because then they take that aha moment and crystallize what was my takeaway and then they can use it. So that's, I think, in many ways, what I get so excited about it. I'm, I'm looking forward to people having great takeaways that they can use. It can help them become better leaders, become better disruptors, and create this change they still want to see happen. So with this age of disruption, we are seeing greater access that we've never seen before. And you know, you bring out your smartphone and you can go to Instagram and, and Twitter and, and YouTube. You're able to see people living their lives a certain way, doing certain things, you know, eating. Like They could be like, wow, I'm in Maui, you know, I'm, I'm doing this or that. And it has created, and, and not that we've never as a human uh, people never compared ourselves to others, but now you really on a global scale can go, oh my gosh, you know, my life sucks uh, because you're seeing all of these things that people are doing. How can people get beyond comparing themselves, get beyond the sort of uh, analysis of paralysis and beyond feeling that they're not good enough? You know, I, I, I was sharing an in, in, in interesting situation. About five years ago, my daughter was on Instagram and, you know, being a high schooler, I said, so how are you liking Instagram these days? It was very, so fairly off. She goes, I've, I've quit it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? She goes, I'm sick of seeing people having fun without me. So, <laughs> she was all her friends and she realized that they were going to parties that she wasn't invited to. She goes, I don't need this. I'm turning it off. I just don't need this in my life right now because I'm not able to handle it. Obviously, she's gone back on. She's doing all these other things. She was doing me the TikTok feed this morning. So I, I look at it this way. The, the, the thing about great leadership, about being a great person and being happy in yourself is to know yourself. So if you know that these things are like really bothering you, why do you keep going back to it? I talk about being on a social media diet. A diet isn't necessarily just about what you don't eat. It is about what you will eat. How do you be healthy in your diet? So how do you be healthy in your social media consumption? If you know certain things are good for you, certain things are bad for you, then that's your choice. Nobody's forcing it down your throat. Unfollow the friends that make you feel bad. You know, you don't have to like defriend them, but you can mute them so you never see those strips of memory. You know exactly what I mean. All they do is talk about how wonderful their kids are, right? So I mute them, but before I go have lunch with them, I go read their feed so I know everything's caught up. Then I go, go and have lunch with them. So I, that's how I manage my friends that don't make me feel so great. But I think more than anything else, I, um, I am very, very prescriptive about the way I use social media. I use it to make it work for me, um, to stay on top of the causes that I care about, the topics, the people, the companies, organizations. I make it work, so I'm very diligent about who I hear from, how I listen, how I listen at scale. And just because you're my friend doesn't mean I have to read your feed, mute, because it's not bringing me happiness, not bringing me joy. But this friend, not that great a friend, but just so insightful, I get inspired by their feeds. But, but the things that the way, the way they look at the world, it's so positive, it's affirming, insightful. I want more of that. 
So I, uh, I try to make my feed work for me rather than me work for my feed. I'm not going to be a slave to my social media. Wow. Marie Kondo. Yes. What brings you joy? Hold that, hold that friend or that connection, not giving you joy. It's out of here. <laughs> yes, yes. So speaking as an entrepreneur, author, and a public speaker, how can entrepreneurs define their purpose, define a business model, and actually come up with a plan that actually will work? Yeah, I keep thinking about who my who the person is that I'm trying to serve. Having a really clear idea of it. I call it a customer, having a clear idea of who your customer is. But customer, again, in the space of education, this is used as a shorthand for the student, for the school, for the community. But if you have a clear idea of who that person is, it's not about the person that you serve today, it's about this person in the future. What are their needs? It's not to say that, that, that this person in the current space doesn't matter. You have to serve that person well today in order to have a future. So you can't ignore their needs. But how you plan, how you put together a entrepreneurial dashboard, for example, for that future, you have to have a very clear idea of who that person is. And I say person, not a group of people. It's not like a demographic. It's not of age or grade or anything like that. Who is this person? and develop a lot of curiosity about that person. I, I have in the book this idea of creating an empathy map. So who is this person? Give them a name, give them a little description, picture if you can, and then describe what do they say? What do they do? How do they think? And very importantly, how do they feel? Because if you can have empathy for that person standing in their shoes, then you can begin to understand what problems they have and the only way you can be successful is if you solve people's problems. If you can identify and solve people's problems, then you will be successful. Most people do it the other way. I've got this idea. I've got this product. It's something that I like a lot. So who wants this? That's the wrong way to be thinking about it. You can start that way, but very quickly you have to go and understand what problems and be very articulate, very clear. But what are the problems you're really trying to solve? Who are you trying to serve? How are you going to solve their problems? And how are you going to get to that point from today to that future? So recently, Robert Smith made the news for this special gift he gave everyone. Now, if you're into business, then you know who Robert Smith is. But for a lot of people who don't follow uh, that world, he jumped like worldwide viral announcing at Morehouse, Morehouse's graduation that he was going to pay off everyone's student loans. And people just like freaked out. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I actually sent him a tweet like, keep it up, keep it up. But I wish I could have sent him a DM and say, look, you know, I got a hundred thousand dollars sitting over here for, the, for this doctor, you know, slip me some coin. But um, where do you see entrepreneurship being a path for those people who have been marginalized by corporate America as a way for them not only to live the type of life and career that they want for themselves, but as a way to actually build generational wealth. 
Yes, I, again, there's two aspects of this. First of all, let's talk about the marginalized part of it. And I so agree, as a woman of color who started a business in Silicon Valley, and who does this thing that typically old white guys do, write books about business and strategy, right? I, I'm a bit of an anomaly there. And when I started in business, there was literally no role models. I, I was talking to my parents, like, are you sure you want to go into business? You're a woman, you're Asian, and you're short, right? You, you do not look like anybody out there in business. And I just went, but I know I can be good at this, so why should I stop? So I have this amazing pedigree. I've got all the educational things. I've done all the things that you should be doing. And it's still really hard for me to get be legitimized. People hand me their glasses at receptions because they think, because I'm sometimes dressed, I've never dressed in black now at receptions because people will hand me their dishes because they think I'm one of the, the staff. So I, I think it, it never stops going because you will never fit the stereotype uh, or, or meet people's expectations. So I think entrepreneurship is a fantastic place because you set your own expectations, you set your own goals. And as a way to be successful, I think the, the biggest problem with people starting businesses is they think too small. They think, I'm just gonna open one store, that's gonna be enough. And I'm like, well, if you could open one store, could you open two? Could you open 10? How big is the problem that you're going to solve? And you may just say, I'm just gonna start with one, but if I can, maybe I can build 10. So I, I ask people all the time, you, you think you can achieve this this year? Okay, you can achieve 100% of that, that's fantastic. You're gonna set goals that are fantastically achievable. That's what we've been taught to do as successful people. And especially when you are a person who's been marginalized, uh, when you can be successful, it's all about succeeding and hitting those goals. But to be an entrepreneur, you've gotta set your goals with 200%. Because you know why? You will try to hit 200%. You mm -hmm. probably won't get there. You'll probably get to 150%. But darn it, that 150% is better than the 100% that you hit. Right? But you have to be comfortable that you didn't hit your goal. That's what being an entrepreneur is. You will never be done. You will always be striving to do more. And you set these huge, audacious goals that seem unachievable, but because you believe that the problem is there, it needs to be addressed, you can pull the resources together to address that problem in a really direct, succinct way, yeah, maybe we can get closer to it. Maybe, maybe we won't get all the way there, but it would be so much better than just saying, let's just achieve what we think we can achieve. So how do you be a successful entrepreneur? Set really audacious goals, know that you're not gonna hit them, and feel comfortable with that. That is not what we do successfully in our schools. That's not what we are trained to do as successful students and um, business people. But that's what crazy entrepreneurs do all the time. So I want to throw this out there to you because you have achieved that level of success and notoriety. What keeps you hustling? I, I think, again, it's, it, for me, it's not the money. If it was ever the money, look at all these huge successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. They have all the money in the world. They do not step back. They keep pushing and striving, like Bill Gates. He's retired from Microsoft, but he's doing the Gates Foundation. I, I, again, it's that passion of what you are trying to achieve, that change, that, that benefit you think you're bringing to the world. So I, I keep going back to 
my passion right now is to connect the world's disruptors, to support them, not only through my research and writing, but hopefully through a network. I want to create a network of disruptors. So, you know, it's a lonely place. It's hard being a disruptor. You're pushing in your school, pushing in your classroom, and no one around you seems to understand what you're talking about. You feel like an alien. So what if you could connect all these aliens and just say, if nothing else, to say, you're not alone. I'm going through that too. I understand. You know, just to have somebody hear you and understand you, just to be heard, to be known, man, that's, that's powerful. That's enough strength to give me to go back and do it again, to push against this impossible task I've set for myself. And if along the way we can learn some best practices, become better leaders ourselves, better disruptors ourselves, all the better. Um, but let's do it together rather than alone. Mm. So if you could only write one more book or give one more talk, what would it be about? Um, it, it would be about how do you find this passion? I hear this so much from people. I know I can do something, I just don't know what. How do I find that passion point? How do I find that thing that will get me up in the morning? I, I feel, I, I've always said to my kids, I, I want you to be happy, but more importantly, I want you to be contributing members of our society. Like, what does that mean? What does it look like? Because if you can find that thing, you can find your passion. So I think the book would be, how do you actually systematically find yourself that discipline to do things like that? Um, because I think that's the biggest thing. That's the, if, we, if everybody could harness that energy and instead of just going to work and putting in my eight hours and then going home again, you know, if it's, it's demoralizing, it's soul sucking, how can we take those precious hours in a day and apply it to something that you think is meaningful, that's going to be building you up rather than taking away from you? Mm. So what is your call to action for those educators who they're feeling stuck and there's their sense of, of, of wonder of being in the classroom is gone? Um, how do they find that spark, that, that energy, that something that it was going to reignite for them while they got into the classroom? Yeah, I go back to those moments um, and remember those moments when you did feel that spark. You got into it for a reason and you probably had it early on. What were those moments? And I, I believe in the mindfulness practice of gratitude. You know, like how did those moments come along? Really appreciate what those moments are. And so how could I, what, what's keeping me from doing those things anymore? I believe that the way that we see the world and the way that we see our organizations is made up of beliefs and behaviors. We call it culture that makes up beliefs and behaviors. So what is the culture that we are in today? What kind of culture have we set up for ourselves in our daily lives that holds us back? So I do a little exercise where I get a post-it note and I do this with a team, maybe a small team, right? And I go, what beliefs are holding you back? Like, what do you believe? And it could be like, I don't have permission to make any changes in my classroom. Okay, write that belief down, put it on the wall. Write down as many of those things and then associate the behaviors that become that belief because I don't think I have any permission to make a change in my classroom. I don't even think about the possibilities of what could change. 
But if you go and ask your managers and you ask yourselves, are those beliefs real? Are those beliefs created by us? How, what if you had new beliefs? What if we were to say, we're not going to believe these ideas anymore because they're holding us back. Instead, on a different wall, take the same post-it notes and put new beliefs out there. What will you believe? I'm going to believe that I can make change, that, that I do have permission to make change in my classroom. So what behaviors will come out of that belief? Now as a group, as a team, we're going to activate those beliefs. Whenever we hear the things that the bad beliefs, we're going to be reminded of it. We agree that that was not going to be something we believe in. Instead, we're going to believe this. So what are you going to do about it? Beliefs are an incredibly powerful tool. When I hear organizations say, we can't do this, I'm like, who said you couldn't? I mean, honestly, who said you couldn't do this? Who said you couldn't go out there and grow at 200%? Nobody did. You just don't believe you can. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. Once you believe in something, then you will act differently. If you believe you can do this, if you believe you can make change, if you believe that spark can come out of your classrooms from your daily work, you will make it happen. So that's when I talk to educators, you know, and, and I've worked with quite a few of them, I ask them, what got you into this space in the first place? And I get it, it's so many things can dack you down. You've been in it for 30 years. It's been going on for like, you know, for the past 25 has been like this. That's a lot of scar tissue to have to erase, to scrape away. But underneath that, there is that muscle again, that muscle to be able to flex and have a belief that you can make a difference. What I find from my book, I found three things about cultures that thrive with disruption. I call it thriving in a world of flux. So you're comfortable. You look for flux. You thrive in that kind of environment. The first one is openness. There's a sense of openness and sharing and decision-making that's open that creates trust. Because you can't do crazy new things if there isn't trust. Their second belief is one of agency, that you have the ability and the control to determine the outcomes. It creates a sense of ownership. And so this is my classroom. This is my domain. This is the place where I can really influence what happens inside of this classroom. I have agency to make that decision. It's not empowerment because empowerment says, I'm going to wait until somebody empowers me. Agency comes from within. And the third thing is there's a bias reaction. You're not going to sit still. You're going to say, I have two options in front of me. I'm going to choose option A or option B. Well, option A, okay. Option, I'll choose that. I'm going to go along that way until I've proven that it's the wrong, you know, it may be the wrong thing. In fact, I want to figure out if a, option A is the wrong thing or the right thing. If it's the wrong thing, then I'll do option B, or maybe I'll come up with option C. But you're definitely never going to say stuck. You're going to keep moving. So there's a bias for action. You cannot stand to stay still. So openness, agency, and action. These are the beliefs I find with organizations that just thrive with disruption. They thrive with flux and change. And they're able to do that because they are not chaotic. They're not like things are running amok. They actually have everything kind of buttoned down. It's very clear structure, how people are organized, what process looks like, how you get things done. And then the third thing, I call it lore, L-O-R-E, like folklore. It's the stories we tell each other, the rituals we have to cement these beliefs of openness and agency and action in our culture and the way that we behave every day.
So these are powerful tools to create culture. And you can do that literally inside of your classroom, inside a small group of you know, similar-minded teachers, maybe inside of an entire school or community. But it starts with you and your beliefs of what, how you see the world. Mm. Wow. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, before we go, what is your message to teachers and school leaders who think that education is immune to digital disruption? Well, my message to them is to say, you know, digital is changing the world. And you can say, I could push it away for a while. I can keep it out of my classroom. I can kind of stem the invasion, if you think about it from that way. But the reality is, are you doing the best thing for the people you're serving? This is not about you and your comfort level with disruption. Are you giving your students, the people who you are trying to serve, the best leg up? Are they learning to the best of their ability? And so I, I look at the digital part of this and the disruption or transformation part of it. The hard part actually isn't the digital part. The technology is pretty straightforward. I, I kind of look at it this way. If you can shop online, you can do any of this stuff. And I've yet to meet a teacher who doesn't shop online. Okay, we all shop online. We do something digital. So the technology isn't the hard part. It's the transformation part that's hard. So if you strongly believe that you know, this digital can be helpful, this is the way people learn, then why wouldn't you be running towards it? Because if it can help you achieve your goal of creating that disruption, creating that educational outcome for the students who still need it, make you a better teacher, then that's going to be there. Uh, so my message to them is this whole idea of keeping disruption out of your classroom because it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing because you have to go through that transformation. So what I focus on is how can we make you as strong as possible to go through that transformation? So let's really go to the root of the problem. It's really hard for you. So I have this message. I drink, I don't have it here with me, but my mug in the morning says, uh, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. So that's where learning happens. What you're doing to your students, pushing them out of their comfort zone so they learn, you have to do to yourself every single day. Now your comfort zone may be really, your circle of comfort may be really, really small at this point when it comes to digital. All I'm asking is that you step up to that very edge of it. That's what I'm asking. I'm not asking you to go all the way out to a circle, to the very edges. I just want you to go to that ex the edge of that comfort zone and just be at that edge and feel comfortable with it. Because when you do, that level of comfort will grow. I guarantee it. It doesn't have to grow overnight. doesn't have to go super fast. But you need to grow as a teacher, as an educator. Because you know what learning does for people. So you need to feel comfortable getting into that space again. So I, I keep saying, you know, if your palms are sweating, your stomach is churning, you feel kind of like crazy about, about it with this digital stuff, then that's exactly where you want to be. You want to be at that edge because that's where learning happens. That's where the magic happens. It's that, um, that so I, I kind of look at it, spin it the other way. Teachers, please don't, if you're in education, don't think of this as something that's bad. We know it's there. We know that it can be positive, but it's your comfort level finding that place where you can 
find that edge and move out of it mm-hmm. and learn to thrive with it. There's this um, interesting book called Anti-Fragile. It's a hard book to get through, but the, are you familiar with the anti-fragile idea? It's, um, um, yeah, I, I, I just came across it recently, and I wish I had seen it sooner because I put it into the book. A base is very fragile, right? If you throw it down the stairs, it's going to break. A resilient base will go down the stairs, not break. Anti-fragile base, when it goes down the stairs, with each bounce, it gets stronger. So here's a question is how do you create somebody who I, I, I want to see myself that with every setback, I grow stronger with every obstacle that I overcome, I become better. And I like, I have a little saying that says experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. So when you are come across a failure, we have a saying in Silicon Valley, feel fast, feel smart. It's not about failing, it's about learning. You do not learn unless you fail. Because you get 100% of something, you'd actually just demonstrate that you know all the material. But when you don't get everything right and you learn how to correct those mistakes, that's where learning happens. So as an educator, that discomfort level is exactly the place where you're going to be learning and growing. So I think about how do you build an educator so they are comfortable living at that edge, how they have strength to come up to that edge every single day. And that's the, the goal for themselves as disruptors, as educators, but also for us as leaders to support them in that, in that pursuit. Mm. Mm. Okay, see if I had some tea, I'd drink it right now. That was, uh, <laughs> wow. Thank you, Charlene, for coming on. You're very welcome. This has been such an interesting conversation and especially for your audience. I'm very passionate, as you can see, about education, the work that, educators do it is sacred work so and i just thank every educator out there who takes on this this challenge of educating our, our young people it's fantastic excellent excellent now people you know how i do this this episode will be going up on apple Podcasts, stitcher simplecast and i just got an email notification that we will be on iHeartRadio, people Uh, So we now have another outlet for you to go. I need you to follow, subscribe, rate, leave your comments because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show and I want her to know that we're doing big things around here. Again, I would like to thank my guest, Charlene Lee, for coming on and dropping so many gems. Thank you for tuning in to the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.